Hey everybody, we're 10 episodes into The Elucidators, so I wanted to take this opportunity to thank you for sticking with us and listening to us try to figure out what's going on across this crazy world of ours, week after week. Now, there's no need to go out and get us a 10th episode gift, but if you feel so inclined, a 5-star review on your podcast app would go a long way towards growing the show. It takes about 45 seconds, and it really does make a huge difference for us. And, we're never mad when you tell your friends about us either. We think it's totally legit to go public with a new relationship after 10 episodes. Thanks again, everyone. And now, on with the show. In the 21st century, global news is bigger, faster, more complicated, and frankly, a whole lot scarier than ever. It's hard to know which stories to pay attention to, or how to make sense of it all. Don't worry too much though, because we got you covered. We're International Relations PhDs, and we're here to deliver a lighthearted dose of context and analysis to your podcast app, week after week. We're decoding global politics, so you don't have to. We are... The Elucidators. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. I am your host, Steve Halley. As always, with me is my co-host, Sumi Chatterjee. How you doing, Sums? Well, I, uh, I kicked over a rock this week, and a rock, not E-rock, and uh, found a near bottomless pit of corruption and despair in our neighbor to the south, Venezuela. How are you? Ah, it sounds like just another episode of The Elucidators. <laughs> I'm I'm doing good. I want to hear more about this. Uh, first, I should say that we're coming at you on Wednesday, October 16th. Um, tell me about the bottomless pit of corruption and despair to our South. We've been into so many of these pits already uh, in our 10 episodes. Happy 10 episode anniversary, by the way. We're still around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're still... <laughs> Still doing this. So, yeah. here, so here's basically what happened. Uh, in the mornings when I wake up, I take to the international news as IR nerd that I am and you are as we do. And I see uh, a small headline that says, Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, has ordered a 275% increase. Let me say that again. The president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, has ordered a 275% increase in the monthly minimum wage, to which I was like, wait, what? 275%? I, okay, so I know that there's been a lot of troubles there. Let me read a little bit more. And the minimum wage rose to 150,000 bolivars. That sounds like a lot of money. Wait a second. Hold on. No, no. Bottomless pit and despair. Let me tell you how much that is. Okay. Uh, the best conversion rates of 150,000, 150,000 bolivars a month is $8. So the minimum wage in Venezuela is now $8 a month. Yes, a month. And according to Bloomberg, uh, that new wage of 150k bolivars a month gets you about nine pounds of meat. A month. A month. Uh, it doesn't sound right. It sounds uh, basically like uh, starvation rations or something like that. Well, I'll tell you what, Steve, it is. And you wanted to hear something even crazier. That is the ninth time in the last two years that the minimum wage has been raised. Wow. 
Okay. So what you're describing right now is a situation we in the business like to call hyperinflation. <sighs> sure enough. Yeah. yeah. So, so basically the Venezuelan currency is worthless and 30 million Venezuelans, most of them uh, are not able to get by on a day-to-day basis. And they're now being afflicted with malnutrition uh, among many other problems, right? Yeah. To Just to, again, personalize the malnutrition uh, aspect of this before we get into the bottomless pit. This is just mm. the, rim of, the rim of the pit again. Uh, in February of this year, the BBC reported that in 2017, the average Venezuelan lost because of, of insufficient access to food, lost 11.4 kilos. So that's almost 25 pounds. Yeah, we're not talking about losing weight uh, by access to Barry's boot camp here. Um, no. Or similar. Yeah, it's like a lot of people in the US could stand to lose weight. <laughs> you know, we have an obesity problem here, but this is not the way you want to do it. That's not what's going on here. There's no. just not, there's not food in the stores and there's not money in people's pockets. So right. this, these are the kind of like human indicators of what happens when a country goes sideways and then fully upside down and starts falling apart. This is a lo- this is a long and truly tragic story. So uh, I guess if we're going to go back, let's go back a century ago. Where do, where is Venezuela in like in 1920, Steve? Uh, so Venezuela in 1920 is well, it's a developing country in Latin America, so fairly impoverished, but it's also feeling pretty awesome because. Uh, I suppose uh, either some Venezuelans or somebody discovers the world's largest oil reserves in Venezuela. They have the world's largest oil reserves, even bigger than the Saudis. Um, Today, they still do. Yes, they still do. A lot of it is still on the ground for reasons that we will discuss. Um, But yeah, 1920, things are looking up for the Venezuelans, um, for sure. And they're looking up so much that by 1958, uh, Venezuela is now a democracy, and it is easily the nicest and most developed uh, country in Latin America. And it's so developed and so wealthy um, that it has a GDP per capita uh, basically right behind Great Britain. Um, So it is actually really killing it by developing country standards. Um, It's doing better than places in Europe, even like Greece and Spain. Uh, Those are poorer European countries for sure. But um, this is like not the type of economic performance you usually associate with a developing country. It's on the backs, all this development that you're talking about between in the 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s. It's because of the oil. Yeah, and and this actually continues all the way through the 70s, um, at which point we start to have some issues with oil shocks and things like this. 80s and 90s, not quite so good. Um, You know, some governmental instability, and we have this guy named Hugo Chavez rise to power. And uh, you may have heard that name. What year are we talking about when Chavez comes to power, Steve? So so Chavez comes to power in 1998 by way of a free and fair democratic election in Venezuela. But um, a lot of Venezuelans' first exposure to him, and in fact, his first exposure on the international stage, is as leader of a failed coup in 1992. And he is like this kind of larger than life, dashing, I think, paratrooper um, military officer, um, who's super charismatic, really good on the mic. Um, and he wants to return Venezuelan wealth to the Venezuelans. 
Um, he is against the corrupt elite. He wants to help out the Venezuelan poor and actually develop the economy and and complete what he calls the Bolivarian Revolution. What does that mean? So uh, this guy, Simon Bolivar, um, was one of the heroes of independence in, I guess, most South American countries, uh, many of them. Um, consider him a, a major hero along the lines of our George Washington, um, except he did it to Spain instead of you know, Great Britain, and he did it in South America instead of North America. But he's a big deal uh, in Venezuela. Bolivar becomes a, a hero, and the idea of Bolivarism, of having a pan-Latin uh, American sort of culture, or even governance, is based on Bolivar's uh, being the founding father of several countries in the early part of the of the 1800s, right? Yeah, the 19th century. That's, that's completely correct. Um, and yeah, so Chavez, in addition to being very charismatic himself, also adopts the mantle of basically the founding national hero of Venezuela and several other countries besides. Um, and he's very adept in kind of uh, appropriating this mythology and getting people behind him. He is legitimately very popular, uh, and he adopts uh, basically a socialist program. He's a he's a leftist populist, and what that means is that. He takes the country's oil wealth and he basically starts giving it away. Um, and I mean, I mean that literally. So, Steve, you told me this guy is he is a he is a, a brash fella. He is incredibly popular and he's got all this oil money and he is giving it away. This is like into the early part of this century, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is basically uh, post-election um, all the way to his death in 2013. Um, but what he is doing is he is basically really heavily subsidizing uh, fuel and food and I think transportation. Um, he's giving away all that lovely Venezuelan oil to the populace, raising standards of living. Uh, oil prices were very high and the largesse was sufficient to keep um, the Chavismo wheels greased and rolling. So he was he maintained popularity uh, by basically buying off the population and legitimately doing a lot of good things for Venezuela's poor. Uh, they consider him basically a hero. Um, he cut national poverty rates in half. He established clinics. He built schools. He did all of these things uh, for which he is still, I think, revered um, in the poorer parts of the country. It it also should be noted real quick as an aside, Chavez had, there's a lot of theatrics that happen at the UN General Assembly. Hugo Chavez has perhaps, he's definitely got one of the all-time moments when he goes to address the uh, the General Assembly uh, a f in the same day after George W. Bush has, uh, has spoken. And he goes to the lectern in the general assembly and he starts smelling the the podium and says in his very distinct uh delivery it smells like the devil has been here yeah and he's of course referring to george w bush right, right, right. so chavez spoke out vehemently uh against uh sort of american imperialism uh which is also a big you know anti-imperialism is a and anti Yankeeism, in particular, anti-United Statesism, um, anti-Americanism—that's what the—that's what that's called—is um, a big part of the Bolivarian uh, ideology. Um, so he is very much of a piece with uh, guys like Fidel Castro. All right, so let let me recap on Chavez. 
He is charismatic. He is a man of the people. He's got bombast, a word that I like very much. Vim and vigor for sure. Oh, no doubt. Vim coming out of his whatevers. Mm -hmm. And he is taking this time. He comes to power in 99. This is a good time to be the head of an oil dependent state because brother oil prices are a booming. This makes him super popular because he takes a lot of that oil wealth from the state and he gives it to the people. But straight up, (laughs) you told me that he dies in 2013 from cancer. That's the thing that you told me. And I, I trust you to be honest. So how do we get from 2013 and this gentleman's death to the pit of despair where people are starving to the tune of 25 pounds of weight loss on average a year? Uh, well, I'll tell you. Um, and it actually starts a little bit earlier than that. Um, so life is good for Chavez in 99, but from a sort of deeper economic perspective, um, Venezuela has some problems. Um, and these are not unique problems to Venezuela. You see them a lot in any country uh, or, or most countries, especially developing countries, that are blessed with natural resource wealth, Right. And this is a problem we like to call the resource curse or uh, somewhat more graphically, the Dutch disease. Ooh, that sounds brutal. <laughs> you know yeah. what? I'm, I'm going to tee it up for you, Steve. What's a Dutch disease? All right. Thank you for that. Um, contrary to what you may be thinking, this is not something you're going to be contracting in Amsterdam's red light district. Um, it is a disease of the national economy. It's something that happens to your national economy when you run into a resource windfall, so for example, discovering the world's largest oil reserves, uh, and people in other countries want that stuff. They want your oil, they want your diamonds, they want your commodities, whatever it may be. Um, So they start sending their money into your country to buy this stuff. Uh, Their money gets changed into your money. So your money, your currency, appreciates in value. It grows stronger, right? And this is very good because you're making a lot of money. Money is coming into the treasury, so you have money. Uh, so the short-term life is good. Um, it's also good because uh, your bolivar, right, in the Venezuelan case, can buy a lot more foreign goods, which is awesome. So you can start importing luxury automobiles. Uh, I guess, you know, the stereotypical Saudi car is a luxury German driving machine along the lines of a Mercedes or a BMW. Well, that's, that all sounds good. Where, where's the disease? Where's the curse? Well, the curse is that if you're Saudi Arabia or Venezuela, you never build your own luxury automobiles because it's uneconomical to do so. Um, it makes no sense to build them in the country. So you never develop those domestic industries. Basically, everybody is working in resource extraction. And furthermore, you can't export anything because your currency is too strong. It's too expensive for people in other countries to buy your stuff unless it's oil, right? So basically, your entire economy specializes around whatever resource you're exporting, and it twists everything out of whack. Um, so you're, you're, you're basically standing on one leg uh, instead of a nicely diversified economy uh, between, for instance, uh, industry, services, and uh, agriculture, right? Um, Venezuela is basically standing on oil and then a little bit of the other three. Um, but but the, by the time Chavez comes around, um, oil is more than half of the Venezuelan economy. You could call it a pretty serious weak point, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so what you're telling me is 
Chavez, while having intentions and actions to help the people, he's largely doing so on the back of really good times for oil. Oil prices are super high. And so he gets to be very generous with all this oil money. But Steve, I feel like I feel like there's something you're not saying about Chavez's management of the PDVSA, the PDVSA, the PDVSA, which is the national oil company in Venezuela. He straight up fired everybody in 2002. So people with advanced degrees, people with decades of experience and like this extremely technical discipline, he just cleaned house and replaced them with like randos who supported him politically, but don't necessarily know all that much about producing oil. So, you know... Because oil is something you don't want to have. Oil production is not something you want to have a lot of technical expertise around. Everybody does it. Oh, yeah. Um, no, it's 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 really trivial. Yeah. No, you just take it up right up out of the ground and don't light yourself on fire or blow anything up. It's no problem at all. Um, everything I said is not true. Right. Now. But then here's the question. Uh, was there effect on oil production out of Venezuela because he canned all the high-skilled workers? Yeah. So even while prices are high, Venezuelan production starts to kind of slide. Uh, it maxes out at 3.3 million barrels a day, which is pretty good, actually. Um, it's not as good as Saudi Arabia's 10 million a day um, or or even close, really. But you know, it's not bad. Um, it goes to 3 million and then 2.5 million and then 2 million um, because the only oil company now in Venezuela is run by people who don't know what they're doing. And they still have the largest oil reserves in the world. Yes. And they're going to stay that way because now oil production is down to, I think, a million, <laughs> a million barrels a day. So it's, it's now at 30% of um, you know, where it was. So even back to Chavez, it's like you know he's kind of slit his throat here in 2002, but it takes him something like 11 years to bleed out. Um, and while this is happening, it's that Venezuela is having more and more economic trouble. He dies in 2013, so he blessedly doesn't have to see what happens next, um, which is his deputy, Maduro, takes over, right? His last act- His handpicked successor. His handpicked successor. His last act is to basically go on TV and implore the Venezuelan public to vote for this guy uh, in the election that is going to come- 30 days after his death by the Venezuelan constitution. Now Maduro is in the driver's seat in Venezuela. Um, he, I guess, was vice president to uh, Hugo Chavez, but he is nowhere near as charismatic or as beloved as Chavez. Uh, Yo, hold on. Counterpoint, Maduro's big. He's a big dude. Um, he's he's an easy 6'4", I want to say two and a half bills, something like that. Yo, at least. He is yeah. a big fella. He's built like a fridge. Um, got a nice mustache. Um, former bus driver. Yep. So that's his main qualification for office. <laughs> Actually, I'm lying. His main qualification for office is being a Cuban agent, literally. All right. So let's talk about Cuba then. So why? what is the relationship between Cuba and Venezuela, Steve? Right. So Cuba, Fidel, the Castros, uh, and, and Venezuela under Chavez got pretty buddy-buddy um, because they're both leftist regimes, right? And Chavez was so, so buddy-buddy with the Castros that he actually was sending Venezuelan oil uh, over to Cuba um, because as long as you're giving away oil, you might as well 
be giving it away to those guys with awesome beards and cool hats. Yes, your ideological communist friends, the Cubans, the Castros. Correct. Um, And Maduro, as a young man, actually went to Havana and trained as a clandestine Cuban communist agent in like basically being a a communist revolutionary. Uh, they, They had a school for this and they taught lots of Latin Americans and people from all over the world actually how to do this. And he is one of these guys. Um, so he has, a, one could say, a Cuban upbringing and lots of Cuban connections. Um, anyway, when he takes over the presidency, um, there is a presidential election, and he barely squeaks out a win. He wins by, I think, a point and a half, right? In 2013. Yes, in 2013. Um, the important thing to note about Maduro is Maduro is not a Democrat. Right. So when he sees that he has almost lost this election, he starts making some changes to make sure that this never happens again. So would an example of that being, um, say, there's 20 Supreme Court justices in the Venezuelan Supreme Court and they're reasonably split ideologically. So he makes it 30 so that he can then pack the court and get a majority going his way. Yep. Yep. There's court packing. Um, There's a really nice move by which uh, they lose control, the, the, the uh, Maduro's party loses control of the national legislature in, I think, 2015. So what he does is he creates an entirely new legislature <laughs> out of whole cloth <laughs> and basically uh, places it above the old one um, and, and packs it full of his supporters. So he's like, you don't like Congress? Well, here's a new Congress. It's full of my buddies. And meanwhile, the Supreme Court is also full of my buddies. So this is no longer a democracy. It is now an autocracy. Okay. So Cuba's getting the oil, democratic institutions, which had many of which had roots going back decades before Chavez comes to power, are now getting torn up. Uh, Something tells me that Putin is involved somehow. Yeah, we'll get to Putin, but I think we should first note that uh, basically Maduro's coming to power coincides with the global oil price tanking from triple digits to like low double digits. Um, and this in an environment where Venezuela is no longer producing as much as it used to anyway. And they still have an undiversified economy. Correct, because of Dutch disease or the resource curse, which we uh, referred to earlier. So there's nothing to lean on. There's no manufacturing. Uh, there's no service sector outside of you know the service sector that basically served the oil industry, which is collapsing. On top of this, once Maduro basically establishes an autocracy and the United States slaps sanctions on Venezuela and uh, sanctions have only gotten worse and worse over, over the years... Um, but they start out pretty bad because one of the things they prevent export of is spare parts for Venezuela's oil industry. Uh, what do you mean spare parts? What is What are spare parts? Uh, I mean, stuff that causes uh, your refineries to continue to produce oil. Um, oh. So, so, yeah, production <laughs> tanks even further. And like there are other sources where you can get these parts, but they're more expensive and not as good. So, okay, this, so is, be- this is another problem. So before we get to Putin, because we're going to get to Putin, you know, yeah. he, you know that that rascal is involved. Uh, so Venezuela is on the economic slide. Uh, they've gone from this boom time of prosperity, 
and uh, poor folks are doing better, but they're largely becoming excluded from the parts of the international economy that uh, that they the, that the state depends on. So, what do they do? Well, they get into more and more uh, into moving drugs. <laughs> Wait, what? They're doing what now? I couldn't have made this up, man. Venezuela, by all reputable accounts we could track down, is the central hub for cocaine distribution in the world. Oh, they're a narco state. Yes, they are both a petro state with Dutch disease and a narco state, which has led many experts to basically call Venezuela a mafia state. So I won't go into all the details on how they're a narco state, but I'll just say this. A lot of a lot of narcotics, a lot of cocaine gets made in in northern South America, Venezuela, Colombia, through partnerships with Mexican cartels. Uh, Venezuelan cocaine is coming into the U.S. There's also this challenge then of now you've got this funny money, this this dirty drug money. How are you going to launder it? Well, there are now flights between Tehran and Caracas and Damascus in in Syria. Whoa, 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 Slow down, slow down, slow yeah, down. Yeah. Why, why, why are you talking about the Middle East now? What, what do you, well, what are you even because, on about? Because the Iranians have been sanctioned by the U.S. and find themselves in similar economic straits, which is denial of access to Western banks and markets. So the question then becomes. Well, what are we going to do? How are we going to get money? Well, you start working on black markets. You take stuff like selling cocaine, and then you got cash, and you got to launder it. Well, you know who's really good at laundering money? Hezbollah in Lebanon. Hezbollah backed by the Iranians. So now the Venezuelans are in bed with the Iranians because they need each other to move back and forth uh, money and other stuff. One of the other stuffs that they have to move back and forth, Steve, you ready for this? Mm -hmm. Iranian trained revolution suppression forces are in Venezuela to help keep Maduro in power. Wow. So he has Cubans, Hezbollah, Iranians, and, and Putin. Putin's going to pop up here at some point. I know. Uh, But the first three are like crazy enough. Tell me about Putin. Oh, we finally got there. So, uh, for after President Trump comes into power, um, there is he brings in some pretty tough elbowed, uh, longstanding Republican foreign policy guys. The mm. former National Security John Bolton advisor John Bolton, who we've talked about, yeah. and Elliot Abrams, who was active in several Latin American, let's just say, entanglements. We don't <laughs> we don't have time to go into all those uh, during the Reagan years. Um, anyway, he brings them in, and part of the common cause found between Trump, Bolton, and Elliot Abrams is we got to do something about uh, about Venezuela. Now, under Obama, Obama works through institutions and regular means to try and corner and hurt the Venezuelans as much as possible. Okay. Trump comes into power with these two tough elbowed guys and they start chucking elbows with sanctions and other coercive means to try and hurt Maduro and bring down the Maduro regime. Yeah. So, so it like not just sanctions, but like a lot of, uh, uh, Maduro's inner circle, um, are literally there are warrants out for them for their arrest in like New York 
right? Uh, for being international drug dealers, like Interpol wants them, stuff like is, that. Is there a name of one particular uh, notable Venezuelan thug you can think of? I certainly can. He is the one and only Minister of Industries and National Production, Tarek Al Asami, uh, which is an Arab name. Yeah, interestingly, Tarek Al-Asami, despite being uh, Venezuelan, has long-standing connections through his family high up into Saddam Hussein's Ba'athist party in Iraq. Which is, of course, also connected to Bashar al-Assad in Syria, who we talked about very recently. Right. Uh, And so, now we arrive at Putin. So, as the U.S. So in 2019, the U.S. is is boxing in uh, Maduro as best they can, and then there is the backing of a coup against Maduro. And at first, news reports say that it is a successful coup, and the new recognized leader of Venezuela is a man named Juan Guaido. Guaido is very telegenic. He's handsome. He's had some education in the U.S. at George Washington University. Ah, GW. Yeah, at GW. He looks like he's going to do all right. However, by throwing in his lot with the Trump administration, he immediately loses uh, credibility with Latin American uh, allies because they are skeptical of Mr. Trump. Mm -hmm. And- Nonetheless, okay, Guaido's got this moment. Most of the Western countries in the world, uh, in Western Europe, Australia, a lot of really big countries are backing Guaido. And Maduro is allegedly on a plane getting ready to bounce. And then Mr. Putin calls and says, "Mm, why don't you stick this one out? We're going to help you out. And he sends troops to Venezuela to help Maduro. Who are still there, right? Like they're these guys are still there. So Maduro now has how many different nationalities around him? <laughs> right. So okay. So Maduro, Maduro is Cuban trained, Cuban allied, sends oil to Cuba. He is Russian backed with forces and God knows what other support. Uh, I'm going to throw in so I'm going to throw in uh, Iran for their Hezbollah connections. Also Lebanon, also Syria, also Iraq. And wait, wait, Steve. Oh, also the Mexican cartels. Wait, wait, Steve, there's also more. The Chinese have invested a lot in Venezuela, so they too do not uh, back Guaido. They back Maduro. And the Indians are the biggest purchasers as, as of uh, Venezuelan oil. Wow. So to to think that all of this started with an increase in the minimum wage... <laughs> Which is well, not nor- normally the sort of thing that, that we talk about on this show because it's not big and flashy. But in this case, it was really just the rather boring tip of a fascinating iceberg that you're laying out for us here. So yeah, this is like the United Nations of skullduggery hanging out around this guy Maduro. Um, he has, I think, by my count, three or four different nationalities of, of intelligence agents basically guarding his person now. I want to throw um, in one more. Go ahead. <laughs> so, one of the things that again Chavez does that was not wise in the long run. In 2008 during the massive uh, financial the global financial crisis, Chavez recalls all Venezuelan gold reserves from western banks. Okay. This comes to the tune of like 11 billion dollars in gold. Right. Now, this is fine. Okay, he's got this gold. Now, these are boom times. Fast forward a few years, 
ask me what Maduro is doing with all this gold that Chavez has brought back from other banks. Uh, is he fondling it on TV? Yeah. I mean, there is, there's pictures of him borderline making out with a brick of gold on television. Yeah. But it's really weird. He's, he's like, uh, he's holding this gold uh, bar like a baby and like rocking it and kissing it. It's- but, but he's not just uh, getting comfortable, familiar with bricks of Venezuelan gold. He is selling his gold to Turkey in exchange for food. Like, wait a second. Turkey? We just talked about Turkey. Erdogan! Right. He is selling Erdogan gold for... He's buying Turkish food with gold. Wow. I mean, I like Turkish food, too. Donor kebab is amazing. Um, But this seems like something that a U.S. ally probably shouldn't be doing, right? Turkey, as a U.S. ally, one would think would not be doing this. Yeah, but they're doing a lot of stuff that U.S. allies aren't supposed to be doing, as we already know from, uh, was that last week? That was last week. That was last Um, week's show. I want to throw in one quick glimmer of hope. So this summer, there were reports that the Norwegians, uh, as neutral as they can be, have started to try and work towards peace talks, some sort of uh, a way to try and uh, alleviate the many tensions that are happening in in Venezuela. But one thing that I think, to bring it back to the beginning of the personal parts of this, there's 3.4, 3.5 million Venezuelans that have fled the country. Yeah. And that's out of a former population of just over 30 million. So we're talking about 10 to 12% of the population is now no longer in Venezuela. Right. Most of them are just on the other side of the border, either in Brazil, but mostly in Colombia. There's tens of thousands that have come to the US. But this Norwegian peace initiative is trying to bring folks, all the interested parties together, as you can tell from our story. That's a lot. And Moscow has at least ostensibly uh, backed these kinds of talks, some sort of multilateral peace talks. Uh, I don't feel good about it, though. Why not? Because the long and the short of this is Maduro has lost all political legitimacy and there's too many powerful people that are backing him for their own selfish purposes. So the Iranians, the the drug cartels all over the world, the launderers all over the world, they don't give a hoot about Maduro's survival. As soon as he goes down, he's going to go down. So why would they get involved in any kind of peace in any kind of peace talks? Why would anyone get involved in peace talks? The only people that really you could negotiate with are the U.S. and they want him gone. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, like all these guys that are helping him are just helping him for their own purposes and to extract whatever remains of Venezuela's national wealth, be it gold or drugs from Colombia or, or point south, um, or of course the oil, right? Um, nobody is necessarily motivated to save Maduro himself. I think you're right about that. Um, but um, part of the problem is also that the people Maduro has surrounded himself with don't seem to be ready to pull the trigger on getting rid of him. Um, in particular, the Venezuelan army is still with him, uh, which is kind of crazy. Like, how is that even possible at this point if everybody is starving to death and leaving the country? Because not everybody is. And he has bought off the the military. During the coup, there was a real, this was earlier in the year, the Guaido coup, there was a real expectation that a lot of the Venezuelan military was going to defect. And they simply didn't. 
one big reason is that the leaders of the military are themselves enriched by what Maduro has been doing. In particular, they are in charge of the national oil company now. So now it's not just political cronies in charge. It's also the army. And they're in charge of all the black markets. Um, so the, while the people have to deal with you know, a minimum wage of 150,000 bolivars a month, um, these guys are actually still spending dollars, which means they're getting really, really rich. Uh, that's a good reason to basically milk uh, the Maduro cow as long as it can survive. Um, so all of that kind of makes sense. I guess the question is, where do we go from here? Venezuela is, you know, I read an article that uh, has called it national suicide. Um, and it is a form of, of state death, right? Uh, Venezuela is a failed state. I, I think there's no two ways about it. Um, civil war has not erupted yet. Usually when you see a failed state, um, you get a civil war along the lines of Syria or Yemen, both of which we have talked about, right? Um, so a civil war is a definite possibility uh, in the not too distant future. So far, the opposition has remained peaceful, um, but I don't know how much longer that can happen, right? So we will continue to monitor the situation as we yeah. always do. Yeah, that's what we do. Um, yep. So we'll we'll keep you posted on uh, the minimum wage in Caracas and and everything else that's going on in Venezuela. But we wanted to bring this actually very sad story uh, to everybody's attention um, because we feel that it deserves more media attention than it than it's been getting recently. Yeah, it would be nice um, if these things in Venezuela were covered uh, more than when the president of the U.S. says something rough. Or when, or that we should wait until a bomb goes off, or something that looks uh, compelling on television. Yes, this is a this is a slow motion disaster, but a disaster nonetheless. And uh, we hope that things will get better before they get worse. But it doesn't look like uh, that is the trajectory things are on in Venezuela. Uh, so shall shall we leave it there? We shall. See you next All week. Right. Awesome. Hello, valued listeners. If you like what you're hearing on The Elucidators, please do us a solid and tell everyone you know about the podcast. If you really love us, please also feel free to rate us five stars on your podcast store, be it iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever, and write us a glowing review, because we rely on your positive feedback and word of mouth to grow and improve. And if you have comments or questions, you can email us at allonewordtheelucidators at gmail.com or tweet us at the underscore elucidators. We may even answer your question on the show.